So if you would, please um, turn back to that portion of Scripture we read just a few moments ago, Genesis chapter 1, first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. So there are um, in the world today a number of separate or, I guess, opposing ideologies and belief systems, aren't there? We've got um, Catholicism and Protestantism. We have um, capitalism and socialism. We have things like liberalism and conservatism. And I guess this morning, if we're being honest and if we're being frank, when we, we, we turn and open our Bibles and we come at Genesis 1, we are faced with what is, I guess, potentially another very divisive debate, aren't we? We're faced with a kind of a, a battle. We're faced with a discussion where on one hand, we've got science. And on the other hand, we've got literal six-day creationism. But today, we're not going to spend all of our time immersed on that debate. We will look at it. We will touch on it, that's for sure. But really, what we must remember is what we saw last week. Do you remember that? What is important is not the questions that we come to Genesis with. That's not the important thing, is it? The important thing is what the Lord God Almighty has to say to us through this portion of Scripture. And let me tell you, there is a whole lot more here than just a discussion about how long the days were. So, with that said, as, as way of introduction, let's open our Bibles, let's look at Genesis 1, let's let God, let's allow God to set the agenda here, and let's look at three points from this portion of Scripture. Three points we will look at the genre of Genesis chapter 1, the genre, we will look at the grouping of Genesis chapter 1, and we'll look at the God of Genesis chapter 1. You got that? So the genre of Genesis chapter 1, the, the grouping of it, and then the God of Genesis chapter 1. So firstly, the genre, the genre of the creation account. Now, I've said in the introduction that we're not going to spend most of our time looking at the details of scientific debate, and that's true, but we're going to touch on it here, and then we're going to move on. And really, the, the the main thing that we've got to see, the main point that we've got to get grips with in, in this, under this first heading, is that even if we take all scientific finding, even if we take geology, even if we take science, and we stick it on a shelf, and if we ignore it for the time being, even if we do that, then what the Bible itself teaches about the length of these days. It is 
far from clear-cut, friends. Even what the Bible says about the six days is far from straightforward. You see, for years and years and years, I thought this was a clear-cut thing, okay? I uh, used to work in a Christian boot shop in Inverness, and people would come in and they would buy their books, and I would find myself talking about the, the, the books and the, the subject matter of these books, and we'd talk about things like this. And I thought this debate was black and white. I thought it was so obvious. I thought you either believed in what the Bible said. You either believed in a literal six-day creation or, or son, you were a heretic. You know, you either believe in a six-day creation or you have let the world influence how you read the Bible. But I was wrong. And the point that we're making just now is that in Genesis 1, things are not as straightforward as they might at first appear. And, folks, it all comes down to that word. It all comes down to the genre. It all comes down to the author's literary style in Genesis chapter 1. See, are we, when we read this, are we supposed to... Are we supposed to read this as a literal account or not? Are we supposed to read it literally? Right. You see, if, it's, if Genesis 1 is a historical narrative, if Genesis 1 is clear prose, then yeah, okay? Then sure, we as Christians, as, as, as God's people... We believe that this is the word of God, and we take it literally. We, we believe in a literal six-day creation. But what if it's not like that? What if it's not supposed to be read literally? What if it's not prose? What if it's poetry? Now, think about that. Please, think about it. You see... We don't read other sections in Scripture. We don't read the poetry in Scripture. We don't read it literally, do we? Take the most obvious example. What's the most obvious example? Let's say Psalm 23. Now, when you read Psalm 23, when you sing Psalm 23, you don't think that God is literally going to find a green field somewhere, do you? You don't think that God is literally going to find a green pasture and he is literally going to take us and bring us and literally lie us down on a green pasture, do you? We don't think like that. Why not? Because it's a metaphor, isn't it? It is imagery. And you see the problem that we've got, the headache that you and I have got this morning is that the genre of Genesis chapter 1 is a hugely complicated, is a hugely complex matter. You see, friends, it reads like prose. But then the author, the author changes it slightly. And there's repetition frequently here. 
And then some would argue that there's regular patterns of parallelism. And these are obvious features of what? They're obvious features of Hebrew poetry. You see, it doesn't read like normal prose, Genesis 1. But, guess what? It doesn't read like normal poetry either. So what we've got is a headache, because what we've got is a kind of middle ground here in this opening chapter of the Bible. So do you get it? Do you get the first point? Do you get the problem that we've got here? Even if we take science, even if we take geology, and even if we chuck it to one side, as I'm sure Phoebe would like to do sometimes, even if we do that, then how we understand the length of the days of Genesis 1 is not a simple matter. Now, what are you thinking? Are you sitting there with an accusation that you are ready to level at me? Are you thinking, well, that's fine, but all you've done, Andy, all you've done is highlight a problem and not provide any solution to that problem. Well, if that's what you're thinking, friend, then you're absolutely dead right. That is exactly what we're doing this morning, but for a very, very good reason. You see, there are three appeals that really need to be made from this point. Okay, three appeals. The first one, the appeal is that we don't become, friend, don't become an unthinking, exegetical snob. Okay, don't become, as a Christian, an unthinking, exegetical snob. Now, you might sit there and you are a six-day creationist. Well, that's wonderful. That, that is fantastic. And for what it's worth, and I'm pretty sure it's not worth very much, I would probably affirm the same thing. But if you're a six-day creationist, then do not look down your nose your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ who, who do not share that same view. Why not? Because this is complicated. This is a difficult thing. This is a hugely complex issue. You know, if we were to get all the big guys, you know, the big names in the Christian world, you know, the Tim Kellers and uh, John Piper and who else will we go for? We'll go for Al Mohler and David Platt. And we get all these guys, Mark Driscoll, and we chuck them in a room. You know what we'd find? We'd find that they all have differing views on these things. It is hugely complicated. And as a congregation, as LCPC, we have to be able to discuss these things. And we've got to be able to discuss them in grace and in unity and in harmony. So don't look down your nose at other Christians. Second appeal. Well, that would be for anyone here who remains unconverted this morning. And I would simply say to you, if you're not a Christian this morning, 
then don't let, do not allow your salvation to be hindered by something like this. You know, don't let your, your, your sin remain unforgiven because you're not sure if the, the third day of creation is a long day or a short day. That would be foolishness, wouldn't it? That would be an eternal disaster. If you are unconverted to this, Jesus Christ freely offers you salvation. It's freely offered to you, even just now, this morning. So embrace it. And don't let these things, don't let things that are not salvation issues, do not let them hinder your relationship with Jesus Christ. And then the third appeal is probably the most obvious one. The third appeal is for everyone here. And the third appeal is to not lose sight of the bottom line. You see, whether it was in a literal six days or not, what happened? God created the heavens and the earth. God created the heavens and the earth. It is he who is all-powerful. It is he who is sovereign. It is he who is the creator, the creator God. Don't lose sight of that. So the first point, the genre, the literary style of Genesis chapter 1. Okay, let's move on. Let's think of a second thing this morning. Let's think, you remember the second point? Let's think of the grouping of Genesis chapter 1. The grouping of Genesis chapter 1. Now, when I uh, moved down with my family from Scotland, we moved from Edinburgh down to London, and we moved into the manse, into the church house. And when we did that, my wife Catherine and I had different jobs to do. And that sort of moving in day, we had different jobs, different roles to fulfill. I was the guy who was lugging the big heavy boxes and Catherine was the, uh, the one who was sorting out the, the CDs and the books and the DVDs and that sort of thing. I'm more of a sort of chuck it on the shelf type guy and Catherine is very much more the organizer. And if you are around at hours and you have any time, have a look at the DVD section and look at it carefully. And if you do that, what you will find is that it is meticulous. It is arranged by type and by genre, and then it is arranged within that, it is alphabetized too. So it is meticulous. It is incredibly detailed. And that is what we've got to see in Genesis chapter 1. You see, we've got to be aware when we read this of just how amazingly detailed it is, how meticulous it is, how incredibly arranged and structured Genesis 1 is. Think about it. Think about the first thing, that it's arranged in a week. I know we, you know, we often just pass over that, don't we? But it's arranged in a week that is both very unusual, isn't it? But it's also highly ordered. Six days and then the seventh. Then, on top of that, think about the increasing complexity of creation. 
How does it start? It starts with the earth being formless and an empty void. And then through light, through, what's next, sea, land, plants, birds, the type of creation changes, doesn't it? The type of creation becomes more intricate. It becomes much more complicated right up until the point that humanity that mankind, the most complicated and complex thing, is made. So there's increasing complexity there too. Then there's the categorization of creation. You know, when Andrew was reading it out earlier on, what do we hear? You know, the plants, the fish are made according to their kind. It's categorized. And then there's these regular refrains. And he was reading it out. Did you hear those? You know, every day begins the same. And God said, every day ends the same way. And it was, there was evening and morning on whatever day it was. And then there's that repeated expression as well. And it was good. And it was good. And it was good. And then, and get this, some commentators point out that even... The wording here, the words are arranged. Even the number of the words are arranged exactly. So you've got repetition of the number seven all the way through the the number of perfection. What do I mean? Well, we've seen there's seven days. But in the first verse, in the Hebrew, there's seven words. Second verse, in the Hebrew, there's 14 words. The word earth is repeated 21 times. The word God is repeated 35 times. Do you see? It was good. It's repeated seven times. Do you see the point? The creation account is not something that was just written down in a hurry. It's something that is highly ordered. It is meticulous. And we should notice something else. Something else that sheds light on that order and the thinking behind creation. But first, a few people have been saying to me over the last wee while, they've been asking me a kind of valid question. They've said, Andy, why is it that you took your paternity leave before the birth of your child, which is, let's face it, a pretty valid question. And the truth is that simply I couldn't get a preaching cover for after the due date. But having my holiday then, it allowed me to do something. It allowed me to prepare for Juliet's arrival. It allowed me to prepare the ground for new life. You see, I was able to sort of go into the room and and get bits and pieces sorted out for the the chaos that comes with a baby. I was able to go out and buy a few things that we needed so that Juliet would be comfortable. And that's the sort of thing that happens in Genesis chapter 1. Now, stick with this. You can split the six days of creation 
into two. In the first column, you've got days one, two, and three. And in those days, what does God do? God creates, get this, he creates a context. He does what I was doing with Juliet. He was preparing an environment for life. He creates light, he creates sky, he creates seas, and he creates land. And then in the second column, in days four, five, and six, what does God do? God inserts life into that created context. He he creates sun and moon to fill the light and darkness. What else does he do? He creates fish to fill the seas. He creates animals and mankind to fill the land. You see, how is the earth described in verse 2? The earth is described as being formless, And it's described as being empty. The first column, God counters the formlessness of the earth. And in the second column, God counters its emptiness. And friends, there is a very, very important lesson. There is a very, very practical lesson application of all this structure and all this meticulous detail and this arrangement. You see, folks, we can get to a breaking point in our lives, can't we? We can get to a point in our lives where we we look at our lives and all we see is a mess. All we see is dis. Order. All we see is uncontrollable chaos. And that might very well describe where you are this morning. And if it does describe you this morning, what do you see in Genesis 1? You see a God, don't you? A God who speaks a word of order. A word of order into a situation of formlessness and emptiness and chaos. And friends, that that means that Jesus Christ, the incarnate Word of God, He can change where you are. He can change the chaos of your life. He can change it into something that is beautiful. He can change it into something that is perfect. He can, the incarnate Word of God, He can transform your life utterly. And it goes from disorder to something that reflects the glory of your creator. Friends, what a miracle. You are created in the image of a God of order. And what a miracle. Jesus Christ can restore you to that. So we've seen a genre. We've seen a grouping. Let's look at our third point this morning, and that is the God, the God of Genesis chapter 1, the God of Jesus. Now, I said last week that when or if you attend a divinity faculty in a university, um, 
throughout the UK, you can pretty much be guaranteed that you're going to be taught a few things about Genesis. And I said last week, you're going to be taught, if you're at a divinity faculty, you're going to be taught that Genesis was written by a whole heap of guys over a long period of time and that it was all patched together. But you're also going to be told that because this creation accounts, it it shares a few words here and there, you're going to be told that this is an example of ancient Near Eastern creation myth. You get it? You go to university, you will be taught that. Genesis 1 is an example of Near Eastern creation myth. Now what we need to see as we close here, and what we need to understand is no way. Genesis 1 is not a creation myth. In fact, what we've got to assert is that Moses wrote this and he was totally and utterly fully aware of the myths. He knew about the Babylonian myths. He knew about the Mesopotamian myths. He wrote this account, in fact, to refute and to oppose these creation myths. And, and this is the crucial thing. Genesis 1 is written, and it's written to establish a few necessary truths about God. Truths about God that contradict these creation myths. So what were they? What were these truths about God that we learn in Genesis 1? Well, the first one, Genesis 1 establishes that there was but one sovereign God. There is but one sovereign God. You see, these these near eastern myths, they're, they're really interesting to read, but they're rubbish. You know, they, 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 they tell us that there was a whole heap of gods. There was various different gods. You know, some of them have water gods, and some of them have light gods, and some of them have big strong gods, and some have weak gods. What does Genesis 1 say? It stands in complete and utter uh, denial of this. You see, the Babylonians especially, they believed that the sun and the moon were gods. How does Genesis 1 deal with that? How does Genesis 1 show that that is nonsense? Well, what does the author do? Well, when it gets to the fourth day of creation, when it gets to the God's creation of a sun and a moon, what does the author do? He doesn't even name them. What does he call them? Not the sun, not the moon. He just calls them the greater light and the lesser light. There is but one sovereign God. And the second thing we learn, and with this we end this morning, folks. Genesis 1, it portrays God as the all-powerful creator. The all-powerful creator. See these near, near Eastern myths. They always said the same thing. They always said that the earth, it came out of conflict. 
It came out of a battle. The creation of the earth, it always came from a battle between the gods fighting together or between gods fighting with matter. But you don't read that in Genesis 1, do you? Not here. Where is the conflict here? You see, look at it. What ease there is here for God, isn't there? How immensely effortless creation is for our God. He just speaks. He just says a word, doesn't he? And the heavens and the earth and all that is in them is created and it is created out of nothing. You see, in Genesis, we see that there is absolutely nothing that can stand against the power of the incarnate word. And friends, that truth that God is all-powerful, it must affect how we understand our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, we learn in Scripture, don't we, that Jesus was the agent of creation, don't we? John chapter 1, what are we told there? John chapter 1 tells us that he tells us that Jesus Christ was the word that was in the beginning. John 1 tells us that it was through Jesus. It was through Christ. It was through the word that all things were made. And this morning, right here, be assured that that same word can work in your life. That same word can impart light where there is darkness. That same word can can work, can save you from your sin. And that same word, such is its power, such is his power, he can make you out of nothing into a new creation. Friends, if we take anything away from today, if we take anything away from what we've seen in Genesis 1, take away the fact that as Christians and as people, we should delight in God's created world. But more than that, let's be people and let's be Christians who delight in the one by whom all of that was made. And let's end with the words of Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11. It says there, it says, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Friends, glory be to the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate Word and the King of creation. Let's pray.